We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular ICRT commentator Ross Feingold. Good evening. And on the telephone by ICRT Central Taiwan correspondent Donovan Smith. And good evening. And tonight we'll be discussing the DPP finalising its Taipei mayoral candidate and a former vice president possibly quitting the DPP. A Greenpeace report on human trafficking in the local Far Seas fishing industry. The rejection of applications by Chinese officials to visit Taiwan. Power supply concerns, because once again it's the summer. And um, concern over the wastage of perishable foods. And we'll begin this evening with news that Education Minister Umar Kun resigned. And of course, his stepping down came as the standoff between the Ministry of Education and the National Taiwan University over the appointment of President-elect Guan Zhongming is still going on, albeit for the most part away from the front pages of the island's newspapers. Now, Wu took office on April the 19th after his predecessor, Pan Wenzhong, also stepped down amid controversy surrounding the Ministry's refusal to approve Guan appointment. Wu was in office for 41 days and became the shortest serving education minister ever here in Taiwan. So I guess putting some levity on Wu's resignation, it makes it Guan Tu, the Ministry of Education, nil. But taking a more serious look at the matter, Wu had been under fire and had been forced to endure barrages of verbal attacks from opposition lawmakers and teachers groups for the past couple of weeks. And he had been accused of illegally obtaining 170 76 million NT in research bonuses from the National Donghua University while serving as its president, stealing patented technology from the said university, and also of illegally working as an advisor at three Chinese schools. Now, he denies all the allegations and he released a statement saying that he felt the need to step down due to the slander and humiliation that he has been forced to endure during his tenure as education minister. Now, according to Wu, the baseless accusations tarnished his reputation and became an unnecessary distraction and burden for both ministry staff as well as the cabinet. Now on Thursday Science Minister Chen Liangji said that his office is in fact looking into whether Wu violated regulations which cover government employees travelling to China in 2005 when it has been alleged that Wu illegally attended a summit held by the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology in China while he served as National Science Council Minister. Now who was in China at the time, we know this to attend an event in Suzhou, for which he had obtained the cabinet's permission to do so. But allegations say that he attended the Zhejiang University, Hong Kong University event two days after that, without first applying for permission. So, nasty allegations, but is this a case, Ross, of people who live in glass houses should probably not throw stones? That's certainly an issue that's coming up as parties, uh, uh, literally and figuratively, uh, political parties or individuals uh, explore this issue. And because the regulations are so unclear in many cases uh, or people's memories are faulty about what transpired at the time or the application materials were written clearly when an application was made. Uh, let's say, for example, a university was applying for a professor, as, as happened in this case, to uh, attend some kind of uh, academic event in China. The application letters might have been written unclearly 
in a sense that years later, somebody could look at it and say, oh, that application you wrote in 2004 didn't list every single person you were going to interact with while you were in China. Uh, so we could uh, look at it from the angle you describe that maybe everybody might be guilty of this. Uh, or we could take another approach, Gavin, which would be to say, uh, what's the logic here? What are we trying to restrict? Uh, or did, did he sell state secrets to China when he went to this academic conference uh, 15, nearly 15 years ago? Of course he didn't. Uh, it was something normal in the, in the course of uh, academic exchange. And he was an academic. He was a scholar at the time. Uh, so uh, m maybe we should just kind of move on from uh, these gotcha moments. Uh, that being said, I, I think there's some fair criticism about the way he has uh, responded publicly. He, he clearly doesn't have a lot of experience with public relations. Uh, it seems that there's some deficiencies over at the Ministry of Education as well in dealing with the public. That's a long-running problem whenever they're uh, accused of some wrongdoing or they've made uh, some segment of society unhappy with some aspect of the educational system or education policy. Uh, so there, there are a number of deficiencies here. Uh, the, the one thing I am somewhat sympathetic to him is on this, oh, this gotcha that you talk to two more people or you went to two more schools that weren't on your application in 2004. But there is also this issue that still requires further investigation about the patents and uh, the allegation that he used school resources and then uh, obtained patents uh, uh, to commercialize what, what was created uh, using school resources, and he's personally profiting from that. That's a very serious allegation. Uh, again, I, I'm willing to give him some sympathy on, on who did he meet and, and, and should he lose his job because of that. Frankly, I think he, he resigned, if for no other reason, then he just didn't want to deal with this NTU, National Taiwan University School Chancellor issue anymore. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I agree with uh, I agree with all that. Um, the the I think really the issue comes down to fundamentally. I, I you know as I said before, I think that this is trench warfare going on, and I think once uh, Wu was nominated, uh, considering the ongoing battle between uh, you know the DPP government and over Guan's appointment at NTU, they kind of made a, a poor choice in choosing this guy, uh, considering the number of allegations. And, of course, the KMT has been essentially pound, hounding him uh, over issues, a lot of them the same ones that uh, that the, the, the government has been hounding the NTU uh, appointment in Guan of, you know, for the, for, for the same kinds of allegations. So they've been making a lot of political hay out of this, and uh, they've been uh, very, very active on hitting the, the government on this. So you'll notice that when um, Wu put in his uh, resignation, it was pretty quickly accepted. Right, I mean, Ross, do you mean this could be a sign that maybe the government erred, shall we say, when it appointed him after Pan stepped down? Well, clearly there is a deficiency in the due diligence, and, and we see this often in, in Taiwan when people are uh, nominated. Unfortunately, there's no approval process for ministry, ministers, unlike in the United States, for example, where uh, nominees have to be confirmed by the United States Senate. Uh, so the, the premier, and, and actually the reality is it's not the premier, even if he says so in public, that, that he's the man who's responsible for selecting the cabinet ministers. Ultimately, it is President Tsai. Uh, but, but we see this not, not just with the current DP 
P government, past governments as well, uh, an inability to do some basic due diligence um, and ask, uh, hey, Gavin, we'd like to make you the minister. What skeletons do you have in your closet that might come back to really hurt this government's image in the public? This is uh, it's not meant to be a witch hunt, but you got to be up front. You're coming into government in very senior roles. And one more point, given that this is the education ministry, it really should be non partisan, right? This is an issue uh, or the education system, the education of uh, children, youth uh, and university tertiary education. It's something that impacts such a broad segment of society. It, it should be nonpartisan. Unfortunately, it's been turned into a bi- uh, sorry, a very partisan issue, uh, starting with the National Taiwan University dispute. And, and now uh, the, you know, the KMT is just looking for anything to, to attack a, a, a DPP nominated education minister. Donovan. Yeah, no, yeah, that, that pretty much sums it up. And definitely, I think that uh, Gavin Phipps for defense minister is a good choice. Um, I'm sure you have absolutely no skeletons in your closet. And, uh, oh, here's the job, by the way. Um, yeah, the, this, this is definitely turned into a, a very, very partisan uh, issue because the, I mean, obviously the status of NTU uh, in sort of the role that it plays in Taiwan being the top university, uh, both historically going back to the Japanese era and currently it's sort of the flagship for the for the country. And of course, it, it's been politicized for so long. And so the, with the, you know, the, there's just been tit for tat back and forth battle over, you know, over the chair, over the um, NTU chair job that's become so intensely partisan. And so, yeah, and it's become so symbolic uh, over something that really, you know, one would hope wouldn't be. So it's really kind of almost a little bit depressing. Um, now, you know, as Ross was saying, yeah, they didn't do, they may not have done a very good job of vetting, but of course, if you ask somebody coming into a job to disclose this kind of stuff, they're probably not. Um, he's not going to come in and say, oh, yes, uh, you probably don't want to hire me because I illegally took uh, patents and ran off to another country. Now, whether that's true or not, we don't know. But these are the kinds of allegations that, that, that have been coming up. Well, Donovan, this is an adult, uh, a very yeah. experienced person. You know, he, should, he, shouldn't say, he shouldn't say, uh, I, I stole some patents or I misused school resources. He, he could be up front and say, look, there, there's this potential dispute with the school. They, they, we've been going back and forth on it. I, I, I want to give you my position. I, I, I think we could resolve this. Uh, but, but to be completely silent about it, take the job and then wait for, for it to come out in the media, frankly, almost immediately, because nothing's a secret here in Taiwan. That that on that part, I have zero sympathy for him. It's totally his fault for not bringing this up when he discussed the potential job with uh, government officials. Yeah, but usually, if there's concern over you know over over this kind of thing, and particularly if if there are genuinely seriously serious questions, you don't normally go to the authorities and say, "Oh, by the way, um, you know, uh, you, you know, it's something that people generally don't do, particularly when you're talking to authorities." Well, only if you have something to hide there, David. Uh, yes, I know. <laughs> Even if there's questions, people generally don't bring it up with authorities. It's, it's you know, human nature. And moving on, and in the latest election news, well, the DPP finally nominated lawmaker Pasuya Yao as its candidate for the Taipei mayoral ballot. Now, according to a DPP spokesperson, President Tsai Ing-wen, who doubles as party chairwoman, believes that Yao presented the best visionary plan for the development of Taipei because, and I quote... 
his long-term dedication to constituency affairs and his expansive understanding of the city. Now, speaking to reporters following his nomination, Yao said that he's 100% confident that he can win the Taipei mayoral election, that even though he's trailing in an opinion polls, and I mean more than one opinion poll, like plural, big plural opinion polls, with recent surveys showing that Yao trails both incumbent Mayor Kerwin Zhe and the KMT's Taipei mayoral candidate, Ding Zhong. Now, it didn't all end there, of course, because the decision to nominate Yao by the DPP resulted in former Vice President Annette Liu, who was also seeking the Taipei nomination. Well, she decided to quit the DPP, and she told reporters that the ruling party has nothing to do with her now. And she also went on to say that the island is fast disappearing from the international arena, and if everyone here in Taiwan is just interested in elections, well, she is no longer interested at all. Now, the DPP responded with a short statement saying simply that the former vice president's decision was regrettable, but the party will respect it. So, obviously, no surprise Ross in Yao being nominated, but a um, bit of a surprise in Annette Liu actually rejecting the party. Well, it's a bit of a surprise that it took them so long to make this decision. Uh, I've looked at the calendar, and they've had four years to think about this, uh, going back to when the DPP decided in 2014, after a multi-stage primary process, not to field their own candidate and to support Ko Wen-jo, which ultimately works, worked out successfully because Ko was elected. But in all this time, they've had uh, the opportunity to decide or, or investigate internally. And, and it, it comes across as if they've left it to a very late date because we're, we're what, Gavin, uh, five months, five plus months away from the election. Uh, and uh, he's starting off from a very weak position, which is reflected in the polls that you mentioned. He's clearly not inspired the electorate yet. He might be able to. Uh, but it's a bit of a bruising situation because uh, there were other DPP personalities who were interested in this. It was not a primary. And, and I, I think the audience needs to understand that, that in other locations around Taiwan, the DPP had a, a more open primary. And here it really came down to the DPP leadership behind closed doors uh, making a, a strategic decision not to cooperate again with Ko Wen-jo. There's a number of factors for that, starting with the 2020 presidential election and working back from uh, that uh, issue. And uh, they, they decided that for our, for our strategic purposes, we're, we're not going to pick Annette Liu. We're not going to have an open primary either. And we're, we're going to pick the guy who's been you know, seeking this now for the second time because he was a candidate in 2014. Uh, so a lot of handicaps for him going into this election. And uh, yeah, Annette Liu, who has been a democracy fighter, uh, a veteran going back to the martial law era, a, a real leader uh, in bringing about democracy, a leader in women's rights. She served as vice president. Obviously, there are people in the DPP who dislike her for a number of reasons. Uh, and she was not the favorite candidate of DPP leadership, even if uh, Yao Wenzhou wasn't in the mix. Yeah, no, I, this has been botched pretty much uh, from the beginning. I mean, the, the DPP really should have uh, been much better prepared for this. Um, you know, the, now, obviously, it's it kind of the, the, there's a suspicion that uh, Tai and a lot of the top people just simply wanted to back Ke because they figured that running a candidate of their own would 
uh, it would have been a failure. It would have been a giant waste of resources and so on. But pretty much the entire outside of, I believe, one member of the DPP caucus uh, rose up and uh, demanded that the DPP run a candidate of their own. And so the internal politics surrounding this were obviously pretty intense. But still, the party really comes across as very flat-footed on this one. Um, now, when Yell polling up until uh, up until a few days ago, where I'd done the analysis, which I haven't checked, uh, I haven't added in the last couple of days. But um, what's very interesting is that in all the polling before, with the with a theoretical two-way between Ding Sojong and Ke Wenzhe, and a three-way between Yao Ting and um, uh, Ke, is what I found very very interesting is Yao entering the race. Uh, he averaged about 14% support, which is quite low, but I'll get to that in a second. What I found very interesting is that on average in the more re- in recent polls was that he was take, taking uh, 9% of that came from the KMTs, a ding, and 5% came from Kuenza, meaning that he was actually drawing off more support from the KMT than he was from Kuenza by entering the race. Um, which I think was a very interesting one, which suggests to me, at least, that essentially he was drawing off uh, some of the never, absolutely, no, you know, no, will not vote for Coenza, will vote for anybody but Coenza, uh, but the, these are the ones who lean pan green. Um, now, what's also interesting is that uh, during, in those polls that you have a, a little over 20% of the electorate identifies as pan green, but he was only drawing in 14% himself. Now, I crunched some numbers, came with a rough estimate of about 23% should be his bottom floor on support uh, entering the election. Now, he didn't have a lot of name recognition. Maybe in the polling it wasn't absolutely clear what party he represented. So I expect his numbers will bump up in the short term. Uh, but he's got some serious headwinds uh, ahead of him. Uh, and so the real question is whether or not he can go out, make a big splash, and maintain a big splash in the short term. Because I think there's going to be a lot of strategic voters who are going to be waiting to see whether or not he's a viable candidate. If he's not uh, a viable candidate after a few months from now, I think you're going to get two different blocks of strategic voters. You'll get the absolutely will not vote for Coenza voters, will bolt to ding, and the... Uh, the pan green uh, absolutely no way will vote for the KMT voters will vote will bolt to Coenza. but if he can come out with a good solid plan and I think I think he needs to campaign more more on a positive level rather than a negative one but do with periodically reminding people of the deficiencies of both Ding and Ke, uh but focusing on the positive, I think if he can do that, he might be able to be, uh, become a viable candidate. But if there's any signs of weakness, I think he, there's going to be a strategic bolt uh, in in people who might have voted for him. Well, that's a challenge for him to campaign only on the positives, though, Donovan, because uh, his style going back to when he served in the Chen Shui-bian government is, is uh, somewhat direct, and he does call out people who disagree with him, whether it's uh, opposite people on the other side of the political divide, uh, K- 
KMT, or in this case now an independent co-venture, or even people within the DPP. So uh, he does uh, have that ability, unfortunately for him, to uh, anger some people, and, and that, that will cause a lot of backfighting. So if he starts to slide instead of progressing, there'll probably be some unnamed DPP people who will uh, badmouth him in the media. Uh, so they, he probably will not be able to only stick on the positives. But even if he did, and I think this is a very important issue, what will he be ta- he be talking about? Yeah, he's got some policy platforms. He's done some really slick YouTube videos, which are also um, uh, periodically on television as commercial advertisements. Uh, but are these policy ideas going to capture the imagination of the public? He's talked again about closing Songshan Airport, which is something DPP candidates have brought up in multiple mayoral elections, and that is not an issue that has captured the imagination of the public. He's talked about building a high line, which is uh, an idea that comes from Manhattan. It's an overhead uh, walkway. Uh, it's like a, a long park from a converted rail line. Uh, but here in Taipei, you'd have to build that from scratch. So he's saying, Let, let's let's get a lot of money so we can erect a, an overhead walkway. Again, this is kind of like closing uh, Songshan Airport and turning it into a big park. It's, it's basically saying... Uh, I don't have any ideas on the specifics about day-to-day life and improving lifestyle here in Taipei, but I'm going to have some. I have some ideas about grandiose projects. Those are not winning issues based on past mayoral elections. I think that people want to hear how you're going to collect the trash, how you're going to uh, lower housing costs to the extent the city government could do that rather than the central government. You know, just the basic daily issues, and uh, he he can't be flying above that. He's got to really connect to those issues to be successful. So as we've been discussing, very challenging for him. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, as I mentioned, I, he, you know, if, he, when he campaigns, I do, the reason I say I think that he's going to need to run a, uh, a positive campaign, and you'll note that I did mention specifically about, he, you know, well, uh, you know, occasionally attacking the deficiencies of his opponents. Uh, the reason is because I think Kuenza, frankly, he's been beat up and attacked for so long, and he's got so many gaffes and so many, uh, you, you basically, I think he's going to have, He's going to have a hard time making attacks stick, um, and so people have pretty much kind of either ma- they've made up their mind pretty much on Cohen's one way or the other, and so I think that if he goes too negative, it's just going to simply bring him down. The problem is, is that both the KMT and the DPP are not running really big winning candidates. You know, as uh, Ross, you noted, he hasn't really captured the imagination of the public with his brilliant proposals uh, in the past, and, uh, you know, we don't know what he'll do in the future, but so far, he really hasn't gained much traction on that. Uh, But going negative, I don't think is going to do him a whole lot of good either. So I, I think that unless he kind of pulls some rabbits out of the hat, he he's kind of a, you know, he's in trouble. Uh, but he does have one big advantage in that he did win the last uh, legislative election, so he does obviously have some support uh, out there, whereas the KMT's uh, candidate is so miserable. He's run for, uh, like Yell, he's run for mayor before and, and uh, you know wasn't allowed to run. Uh, the KMT candidate, he's run multiple times. Uh, he lost his last legislative uh, run. Uh, but he does, uh, the KMT candidate, of course, Ding has the advantage of running in a largely pan-blue city. But he's kind of a multiple loser and a recent loser. 
So the both the KMT and the DPP are not exactly running strong candidates right now. Right. And last week we discussed the National Immigration Agency's refusal to grant visas to two KMT officials seeking to visit China for a cross-strait summit. And this week, well, the agency rejected applications by 10 Chinese officials scheduled to visit Taiwan for, well, a cross-strait summit. Now, the agency cited suspicion of promoting unification as the reason for denying them entry due to Beijing's stepping up of unification campaigns in recent months. Now, the government has stepped up its visa review process for Chinese officials in recent months, but the Mainland Affairs Council still says that despite the stricter standards the government is now adopting when reviewing such applications, it remains supportive of and encourages cross-strait exchanges. I wonder if the government officials who make these decisions have heard of something called the Internet. Obviously, our listeners have, because some of them are listening not on the radio, but via podcast. Uh, But any attempt to disrupt the flow of people or ideas ultimately is unsuccessful simply because uh, this can be done via telephone or, or the Internet. One of the issues that's been discussed in the media over the last few days is whether an organization was coming uh, to Taiwan to recruit academic scholars to teach at academic institutions in China. Uh, So you prohibit them from meeting candidates in Taipei. And what will happen? They'll just speak on the phone or they'll meet in Hong Kong or they'll meet in China. And those academics from Taiwan who are interested in working in China, that's their right to go. And they'll go if they feel that the salary, the general uh, benefits and uh, the opportunity for career advancement are to their liking. And we can't stop them from making that decision. So I'd be very leery of the road we're going down with banning visits. Yes, of course, we should ban uh, people who are known uh, saboteurs or agents of Chinese uh, security agencies, uh, but banning uh, junior government officials from some provincial town, uh, third-tier city, uh, some academic institution that nobody's heard of, I I think there's some risk. Uh, Taiwan's security agency should actually show a little bit more self-confidence if, Gavin, I'll use you as an example, if the security agents here thought you might be a saboteur or a unificationist from China, they should just monitor you when you're here instead of banning you. I'd sooner be an Asian provocateur. It sounds better. Uh, An Asian provocateur? Agent provocateur. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I frankly, yeah, this is this is a largely symbolic uh, action, um, and you would really, when you think about it, it's a pretty pretty mild punishment to China. I mean, China has been very has been ramping up uh, uh, the provocations on their side uh, significantly. Um, over the the last few months um, and doing everything it can to humiliate and back Taiwan into a corner on so many different issues uh, and to bully the rest of the world into uh, governments and uh, uh, companies into in trying to delegitimize Taiwan's uh, uh, presence on the world stage and the Thai's, the Thai government's strongest reaction is, uh, we'll, we're going to make it a little bit harder for academics or government people to come over uh, from China. It's a pretty mild response. Um, I think uh, the Thai government has done a very good job of being non-provocative in, in the sense that 
the China has been very successful over the years in portraying any action on the Taiwan side as being provocative, well, they can get away with pretty much anything. Um, so Tsai is being very, very cautious, and I think, but I think there's been pressure building on her to do something. Uh, so she's done something, but I don't think it's it, it, it's particularly substantial. This is just simply uh, shuffling papers, and uh, we're just going to make this slightly harder, and that's really all it comes down to. A knee-jerk reaction. I don't think it was a knee-jerk reaction exactly, but it was. It, it's it's it, it's a symbolic, mild tightening. That that's it. That's all it is. It's not. You know, it's not a, a not a very sub- substantive uh, response. Right now, Greenpeace has released a damning report about Taiwan's failure to tackle abuse of foreign crew members, poor labour standards, dire working conditions, and harmful fishing techniques within the island's fast seas fishing fleet. Now, the report, titled "Misery at Sea," targets what it calls the continued failure of Taiwanese authorities to effectively sanction human rights abuses. Now, the report highlights the trafficking of Cambodian nationals into Taiwan's fishing fleet and the. Apparent failure to properly investigate the death of an Indonesian fisherman on board a Taiwanese fishing vessel. Now, the report identified four Taiwanese nationals who have been convicted of human trafficking in the fishing sector in Cambodia, and apparently they're currently working as labour brokers for migrant fishermen back here in Taiwan. Now, the Fisheries Agency has said it's aware of the men's alleged involvement in human trafficking, and also said it handed their case to prosecutors for investigation. However, prosecutors apparently. Refused to pursue the case, which is basically Greenpeace's argument, Donovan. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's some truth to the to the allegation, I think, but also uh, I know that the counter allegation from uh, the an, an international fishing organization was that they were working out of out of date information, and to a certain degree, there was a little bit of that as well. So I think it's kind of a, and the reason why I say that the, that is that, for example, in the case of the death of Suprianto, uh, who uh, which I'll get into in a second, but he uh, that case had originally been essentially ignored, swept under the rug uh, by local prosecutors. Now it was the Control UN uh, who recently said, uh, who actually re-examined the case and said that, no, this is a case that needs to be re-examined. Prosecutors recently have brought this uh, case up again on the orders of the control UN. So, and I, from everything I understand, the Greenpeace report does not reference that. In other words, it's, uh, it only references the initial sweeping under the rug, but not that Taiwan had come back and actually readdressed the issue, um, and that it is now an, an active trial. Now, in a recent piece uh, in the Newslands by Nick Aspinwell, uh, at the bottom you can see I'm uh, noted as additional reporting by, uh, I did a um, an interview, uh, an exclusive interview with Sukiran, who is one of the um, boatmates of Suprianto. Um, <clears throat> and uh, unfortunately, only two news outlets that were at all interested. Uh, the, uh, the other one was public television. But... Um, now, he described uh, a situation on that boat, which the, the only word I can use is absolutely horrifying. Um, it was, uh, he described basically a lot of, you know, repeated beatings, uh, 
they were understaffed. Uh, one of the members was swept off because they were understaffed. There were normally two people pulling in a net in a storm. There was only one because they didn't have enough people. One person was swept off by a wave. Um, the uh, uh, And the person in question who died, and this is a, a murder investigation, um, and now the initially they said that he died of a of uh, an infection, um, and the the and what Sukiran said was, and uh, some uh, photographic evidence seems to suggest that he uh, seems to back him, um, is that essentially what happened is is that Suprianto was beaten repeatedly. Uh, they were sleep deprived. They were often uh, they were sometimes not fed, and what happened is is that the wounds from his beatings got infected, and they were also not um, uh, always given. They were sometimes, sometimes not given, according to Sukiran, uh, given medical treatment for wounds. So, Ross, of course, the government makes a big play of human rights. I mean, this damning report doesn't say very much about human rights in Taiwan at all, does it, really? Well, first, we we should thank uh, Donovan and his colleagues for, for the excellent reporting on this issue and bringing it to a wider audience because they're writing in English so that people outside Taiwan could also better understand the situation uh, beyond what was in the NGO's reports. Uh, but, yeah, it's fair to say that there's a dichotomy between the talk about human rights and transitional justice here in Taiwan and then what is actually done to safeguard the rights of foreign workers. Here's another part of the equation, Gavin. This is a long-running issue. It is not the first time that NGOs or other stakeholders have made these accusations about Taiwan's fishing fleet. Inevitably, government stakeholders here in Taiwan make the same responses. They say, we're trying but. So we're trying to educate the fishing fleet owners, but there's only so much we could do. We're trying to investigate, but uh, they say they're innocent and there's no evidence. Well, of course there's no evidence. It happened thousands of miles away from Taiwan out on the uh, international waters. Uh, they'll, or they'll say that the foreign workers uh, have disappeared. We can't find the witnesses. Uh, the, they'll, they'll say that uh, we, we try to convict, but there wasn't enough evidence. I mean, there's just a, a long list of excuses why the government agencies, whether it's prosecutors, the fishing regulatory agencies, won't pursue this all the way to the end. And yes, it, it looks very bad internationally for Taiwan. And it is not a valid excuse for Taiwan to say other countries that operate fishing fleets that go f far afield, um, and Taiwan's not the only country with a fishing fleet that goes great distance to fish, uh, have these problems. Taiwan needs to do 101%. It's not enough to do 90%, 95%, or 100% and say, we're, we're doing the best. Our standards are, are uh, no better or worse than other countries. The only answer here is to say, we do better than everyone else, and we have prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law the people who are guilty of these horrible activities. And if the will existed in the regulatory and the prosecut prosecutorial agencies, they can do that. So the, the fact that this keeps coming up over an extended period of time really does tell us that the will does not exist to do something. So Donovan, I mean, the Indonesian chap you spoke to, did he mention this? Did he, was he angry, upset, both? Uh, I mean, he described um, 
Uh, just quickly on, on what Ross was saying, which is absolutely correct, um, in, the, in that, you know, there, the, there is a problem with, of course, you know, it's, the, the, these cases often happen way out at sea, and there's no proof and all of that. I will give, give Taiwan credit for a couple of things on this, and also in this particular case, in the death of Suprianta, there is some evidence, and uh, both photographic of his rather, uh, of, you know, you could see the wounds on his body, just you assume before he died, how emaciated he was. Um, and then, of course, his testimony of the boatmates. Um, and also the, the fact that the control UN, uh, now I, I think what Ross said about the, you know, about local officials is absolutely correct that they, they, they have not been proactive. But there, to, to the credit of Taiwan's government, the control UN did bring this issue back up and uh, ordered the case reopened. Um, so there's positive signs of progress, but obviously a long way to go. Now, um, in the case of the guy that I spoke to, Securin, um, you know, he described also being beaten repeatedly. Uh, he described uh, being forced to lie about certain things after the event uh, by his broker, um, uh, including that uh, they claimed to have searched for the body of the, the, the uh, co-worker who was swept off board for you know, eight to ten hours. He said in reality it was maybe two um, he also, uh, uh, he himself was uh, beaten uh, quite a bit, and, and then he also, uh, like the like Superantu who passed passed away, uh, described being you know repeatedly they were given very little sleep, they were overworked, and all of these uh, uh, allegations. Now he also mentioned uh, though that apparently he still has yet to be paid for that trip. Uh, kind of adding insult to injury, um, and so the you know now uh, you know sort of added up this it, it was just one horrific thing after another. Um, now again, some of these allegations are not you know not independently verifiable, but uh, the pattern that comes out from my interview and some of the interviews with other uh, fishermen is pretty pretty overwhelming in that a lot of this abuse does happen. Right, and we'll move on to some more cheerful things, or slightly more cheerful things now. And, of course, it's summertime, which, of course, it means while it's time for fruit popsicles, there's once again concern here in Taiwan that our ice lollies may well melt in the freezer due to power outages as the hot weather pushes electricity consumption to record levels. Now, electricity consumption peaked at 35.3 million kilowatts at 11.30am on Monday of this week, and that's the highest ever recorded for a month of May, and it resulted in Thai Power's operating reserve margin dropping to an alarming 4.01% of operating capacity. Now, Economics Minister Chen Rongjing has said that once this week, in fact, he said more than once this week, I should say, he's repeatedly said this this week, and he's repeatedly said that electricity supplies will remain stable despite the high temperatures, and his office is not anticipating any need for government agencies to impose power rationing. Now, Chen 
Ryan also said that several generators will be brought back online in July and August after maintenance is completed, and that will boost the operating reserve margin to about 6% and ease power supply concerns. And of course, those statements came as some 70,000 households in Miaoli and Taijong were left without power on Wednesday afternoon. So, Donovan, are you, are you concerned about power outages once again this summer? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, I mean, the thing is, Thai Power has been operating on a low margin for, for quite some time now. Um, and the government's backed itself in, into a series of corners, corners in the short term. Um, the Thai Power has been plagued with problems for as long as, you know, pretty much, pretty much for living memory. Um, uh, it seems like almost every year, since forever they've had some kind of problem whether it's self-inflicted or not um either they've been overwhelmed but frequently they you know they have maintenance problems um memorably they had a tower go down in in nanto which wiped out the power supply to half the country at one point um and so yeah the uh the so they they're in the short term now they're trying to rectify the situation by adding uh coal and, and liquid nat- natural gas um to uh you know obviously up in Taipei but also the something that a lot of people don't realize is the massive Taichung power plant which has 10 units right now uh they're going to be adding two new units their natural gas units and a lot of people thought that they were going to bring those in to replace two coal units but instead, they're going to be added in addition to um, the coal units. And, of course, in terms of pollution, as a general rule of thumb, uh, uh, natural gas-powered uh, units are about half as much as a coal unit. So essentially, they're adding, in pollution terms, about one uh, additional coal unit. Um, but so they're, going to, they're adding that. And now, so all of this, they, you know, they're starting to... Uh, restart up uh, nuclear um, uh, the nuclear reactors uh, but of course not finishing the fourth nuclear reactor ha- which Thai Power was banking on uh, has left a major shortfall they they planned on going one way and then were st- and then that was shot down without really adequate provisions made to cover the shortfall now in the medium to long term there's quite a bit of new capacity coming on both in renewables and of course as i just mentioned the liquid natural gas and uh probably coal uh but of course, and down in my neck of the woods the offshore wind they've already uh put out uh they've already uh, given uh licenses for 3.8 gigawatts which is a pretty significant in offshore wind and they're going to up that to 5.5 but that's going to take years to come online. They don't have the infrastructure on land to bring that into the grid, uh, and it's going to take them years to set that up. And, of course, there's going to be setbacks uh, because it's setting up an entirely new system. So that's going to be a little while before it comes online. When it does, it'll be a significant boost, but that's going to be a while. Also, battery technology is another problem. Right, of course, that's the long picture. But, Ross, it's summertime, and this always happens in the summer. It's always that my, my, my popsicles don't want to melt. 
in my freezer, Ross, in the summer when the power goes out. Well, that actually, all kidding aside, Gavin, does bring up an important point, not just for the corporate world, but for individuals like us as well, which is uh, everyone should take some mitigation measures at their homes or at their companies. Uh, and we remember, uh, as, as Donovan indicated, the incident last summer um, when large parts of the island, including here in the, in the capital of Taipei, did lose power for a number of hours. So these things can happen. It's a significant risk, despite the optimism of the economics minister or Thai power. So, Gavin, back up your, uh, your data uh, frequently in case your computers go down. Don't keep a stock of popsicles, unfortunately, but that gives you an excuse to go out and, and um, you know, meet, meet your neighbors while you're buying a fresh supply of popsicles. Uh, but uh, the, 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 there's another issue which links to an earlier part of our conversation uh, on this program with regard to the education minister, which is the economics minister also seems very challenged in confronting the media, confronting uh, challenges from the opposition. He was, he was all but in a shouting match with a KMT legislator this week who, who was accusing him of not uh, explaining accurately what the situation is. So this legislator is literally at public events running after him saying, minister, minister, you, you have to address these issues. And then she's standing uh, right in front of him uh, shouting and making accusations. And he seems a bit challenged in responding. So the, the, this goes back to the government's ability to uh, manage the media, manage the public, manage the opposition. And they should be able to do that, assuming they are telling the truth. So if they are really telling the truth that there's enough reserve, they're prepared for the heavy demand during the hot weather, which we've been experiencing already in the last few days, then they need to do a better job of inspiring that confidence in not just the public generally, but certainly in the corporate world as well. Because obviously it would be very bad for the economy if the power supply is inadequate, if there's a blackout, uh, and we should keep in mind that we're getting into not just a local election season, but a national election season over the course of 2019 as well. So uh, if the government really is confident, they need to do a better job of explaining that there is absolutely nothing to worry about. I, I'd add to that, um, uh, and because that's absolutely correct. Um, it's just I, I loaded up um, yesterday my uh, news headlines to read, and th these are two headlines. Uh, power lost to 70,000 households in Taichung and Miaoli, and another headline loaded up at the same time. Uh, Thai, you know, Thai power insists uh, that, you know, that they will guarantee that there will be a stable power supply. Same day, those are two headlines, uh, and which says a lot, frankly. Yes, contradictions, and my popsicles are going to melt. Oh, I don't want my popsicles to melt. Anyway, we'll talk. We'll move on to our final subject in today's show, and that's wasted food. And that's because the Environmental Protection Administration is urging the island's major fresh food retailers to stop throwing so much of it away. Now, the EPA says that some 6,630.4 metric tonnes of perishable food was thrown away over the past year by the fresh food retailers, and most of that waste went to pig 
farms and compost plants. Now, according to the EPA, the figure has risen significantly since it introduced a regulation requiring hypermarkets and supermarkets with paid-in capital of more than 25 million NT to actually report their flow of food waste. Now, that regulation was implemented in March of last year to prevent certain businesses from selling expired or waste food. Now, the EPA says it's now working to encourage retailers to reduce food waste by offering discounts on perishable items that are near their expiry date. So, Ross, food waste, not a good thing. But again, there's questions about expiry dates, of course. Are expiry dates actually meaningful? It depends on the product as well as the company involved. So, uh, more reputable, larger companies in the food industry, notwithstanding some of the past scandals we've had here in Taiwan, uh, they'll typically have an expiration date that is actually uh, uh, for, leaves a lot of safety. So uh, a product at a very large retail, reputable retail uh, food chain, uh, the, the expiry date that will be on the product or the time they'll take it off the shelf, uh, whether it's fresh food or packaged food or frozen food, uh, is probably actually earlier than um, what what is necessary from a, a consumption safety perspective. So we should have some confidence in their ability uh, and that they're taking stuff off the shelves. Uh, But there's another tough issue here, which is uh, this is a culture that traditionally eats fresh food uh, and packaged food uh, is certainly something that's a more recent phenomenon in the last uh, maybe two to three decades. Uh, So whether it's packaged food or fresh food uh, at at, um, uh, supermarkets, let alone more traditional markets, which aren't covered by the regulations we're talking about, uh, there's a desire for the absolute freshest food. And uh, it's kind of understandable that the retailers are going to quickly throw stuff out. There there are ways to solve this, though. One would just simply be the use of better technology, better tracking technology, better uh, tagging of the food, which nowadays is is relatively simple, whether it's QR codes or more advanced technology on on the packaging uh, to track uh, the the inventory in, the inventory out, uh, and reduce the wastage. Uh, So hopefully uh, the government will work together with industry rather than view the industry as as an enemy who's to be fined and and chastised. Well, I... I think, obviously, this is a big government uh, conspiracy against pigs. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, obviously, the, uh, the food has been, uh, you know, the food, once it hits the expiry date, it's been fed to the pigs uh, or put for compost. Now, obviously, if you're a pig consumer uh, and you are looking forward to your food coming from the supermarkets, this is a serious uh, blow uh, coming from the government. So that you you know, as a pig waiting for your expired steak or whatever the food product is, um, clearly the, the the pig constituency is going to be very very upset with the government over this, um, and you know that they are not going to they that the government is making moves that they will be getting less and less of this uh, food from the supermarket. So I mean, obviously, if I were a pig, I'd be very upset. But I mean, should the government be? I mean, obviously, it goes to pig farms and compost. Plants. Yeah, and that, the thing is, that's a, that 
you know, obviously I was being facetious there, but the, the, the thing is, is that those are actually, the, the food isn't being wasted. I, I think, so, you know, it's, um, I mean, everything that, that Ross said there was correct, I think. Uh, but, the, the, you know, in a lot of countries uh, in the past, food was literally just simply thrown away. It wasn't reused, whereas in Taiwan it has been used as compost, has been used as pig food. So it's, it's not as if the food has been completely wasted. Um, it is being reused or repurposed, probably not as efficiently uh, as it could be, um, and for some of the reasons that Ross uh, mentioned. And that's where we'll leave it here on Taiwan This Week, This Week, with me, your host, Gavin Phipps, and I've been joined in the quiet studio today by Ross Feingold. Good night. And on the telephone by Donovan Smith in Taichung, who's been serenaded by jackhammers. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Anyway, have a great weekend. And we'll see you next week here on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.